Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, and you are listening to the only podcast. Well, it used to be the only radio show, but it's the podcast now dedicated to helping veterans come home well. If you're a veteran or you know a veteran and you would like them to have some help, some resources, some places to turn for these myriad of challenges veterans face, you are listening to the right show. Welcome back to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron, and today we have a very special guest, Ron Havid. He's an Emmy-nominated, award-winning photojournalist and co-founder of the Photo Agency 7, which is dedicated to documenting conflict and raising awareness about human rights issues around the globe. Now, how has he done that? In the last three decades, Ron has covered more than 25 conflicts and worked in over 100 countries. He's published three critically acclaimed collections of photography, and his work has been featured in numerous museums and galleries, including the Louvre, the United Nations, and the Council on Foreign Relations. And the reason we've invited Ron onto the show is that he's been in more conflicts in more places than almost any soldier I know. There's probably a few that are pretty close. Welcome to Coming Home Well, Ron. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So you've been in 25 conflicts. Photograph, the the war, the fighting. How in the world did you get started doing that? That's a good question. I learned how to be a photographer pretty much in my last year of university. And really, I was only looking for a job that would make sure I didn't have to sit in an office. Just wanted something that would allow me to travel. And photography seemed like kind of a way to do it. And somehow I kind of fell into this idea of being, um, I first wanted to be a writer. And then I said, oh, you know, maybe I should just tell stories with pictures. So I said I should be a photojournalist. And I just started working on the streets of New York. And I had some people that kind of put their arm around me and said, do this, do that. Incredibly helpful. And all of a sudden, I found myself um, 1989 in May uh, in Panama, covering a dictator, a guy named General Manuel Noriega, who had decided to hold elections to prove to the world he really wasn't a dictator. And all of a sudden, I was in the midst of my first uh, rioting and violence and so on. And make a long story short, uh, Noriega lost the election. He nullified the results. And the would-be victors came out onto the streets. And I photographed the would-be vice presidential candidate uh, being beaten up by a paramilitary. He was covered in blood. And it was a very dramatic photograph. It was on the cover of Time and Newsweek and lots of magazines and newspapers around the world. And all of a sudden, there was a big outcry about human rights in Panama and so on. And it was a big push for me as a photographer to kind of make a splash like that. But it really was when the United States eventually invaded Panama in, in December, December 20th of that year, uh, President uh, Bush, Bush Sr., when speaking to the nation about the reasons for the invasion, used the photograph as one of the justifications for the invasion. And when I heard that, I kind of started to understand what I was doing in a very different manner. And it wasn't whether or not I agreed with the invasion. It was the fact that 
my photograph was part of the conversation that was going on uh, on a political level with presidents and so on, and had some impact on what on what was happening. And I thought, well, this is actually a pretty interesting way um, to spend my life trying to document things so I could help educate other people about what's going on in the world. So your first conflict, you capture that iconic image and you go, wow, this is for me. Exactly. Yeah, I really um, I mean, it was a very dramatic uh, situation. It was the first time that I had heard gunfire and there was riots in the streets and tear gas and people being beaten and so on. And while I'm not a great fan of that, it's also important that there's documentation of things like that when they, when they happen. Most people I know that would be caught up in riots and shooting and an invasion by a foreign power would not go, you know what? I want more of this. Well, I mean, there's the, there's, there's of course, the main goal is for me to, to show the world what I see. And then there's also the selfish side in that I get to see history being made for myself. So I watched the U S invade. I was in, um, Kuwait City when it was liberated during the first Gulf War. I was in Baghdad when the statue came down in the second war. I was in Berlin when the wall came down. You get to see all these amazing things as as a photographer and, and this privilege to show the world your interpretation of what's happening. So how do you decide which conflicts you're going to go visit? I mean, because to be there at the right time at the right place uh, is probably as much luck, but probably a lot of planning. Well, absolutely. There's always going to be a lot of planning. Part of it just depends on what I was interested in. So, for instance, um, there used to be a country called Yugoslavia, which dissolved over the course of 10 years with a series of different wars. I was there in the beginning, and I had made a determination to myself to be there until the end. So over the course of 10 years, I spent more than five years on the ground. And so I got to know that story very well, was able to plan. I knew people. I had logistics set up and helpers and colleagues, people that live there, people that were coming from abroad and trying to to make an impact, trying to show people what was going on and how these people needed needed help. And so that's often the the desire is to go places where people should understand what's going on. Let's take a place like Darfur in, in Sudan. It's a civil war that even now is still going on to some degree, a little le- much less since the change of government. But for years, Thousands of people were being ethnically cleansed, and the only people really paying attention to it were were journalists and photographers, and the rest of the world was just not interested. And when we live in a world like we do today, we are where we are so interconnected. Where let's just use using Darfur again as an example, where China is, was supporting the government of Sudan at that time, and the Olympics were happening at one point in Beijing. There was that opportunity where pressure could have been put on the Chinese if people said we're going to boycott the Olympics unless you stop supporting the civil war in in Darfur. And so it's the hope, these kind of hopes where the photographs and the stories will galvanize people to to react. It doesn't it doesn't always happen. More often than not, it doesn't happen. But in the end, though, the photographs remain as these documents of history. It is absolutely amazing how photographs can bring back feelings and thoughts. I have several photograph books of my time in Bosnia and things that I've I've compartmentalized, I've put away in my mind because I was just a young person. I was just in the military for a couple of years when we went into Bosnia and I I saw the, the width and breadth of the country. It's a wonderful place, lots of wonderful people. 
but it was also my first exposure to real, no kidding, violent hate that was just so shocking to me. And every time I look at these photograph books, I'm like reminded of those sort of dark days of, of conflict that eventually now is mostly gone, thank goodness. How in the world did you spend five years like sort of capturing the different factions and, and groups that were willing to kill each other just because of what ethnic group they were in? Well, it was a very difficult uh, series of conflicts to, to document. In fact, uh, more journalists were killed and wounded covering that those different wars than any other war since World War II. It was surpassed by the, the war in Iraq and Syria. But it was a very dangerous thing to do. But those of us that were going there felt very dedicated to trying to tell the story because we realized that the people that needed the help were not being allowed to defend themselves. And it was a matter of changing public opinion to force the U.S. government, the governments in Europe to at least, especially in terms of the war in Bosnia and to some degree the war in Kosovo, to allow them to defend themselves. And eventually that's what happened in both wars where NATO became involved, the Americans were on the ground um, and things changed, but they could have changed much earlier and thousands of lives could have been saved. And so while I am proud of the work that I did, let's say in Bosnia, I was uh, the first photographer to document what became known as ethnic cleansing. I was able to work with a Serbian paramilitary group and somehow I was able to photograph them executing unarmed civilians. And that, that work became evidence that was used in the war crimes tribunal and so on. But the, the work didn't have enough impact fast enough. And it was, it was very disappointing um, that we were, the, we, the collective group of uh, journalists and pundits and so on that were trying to convince uh, governments to react faster, weren't able to have enough of an impact. But we did. And as you know, you were on the ground enforcing a peace and you saved um, a lot of lives. But it's also important to realize that as we look at Bosnia today, which still is a very dysfunctional country, um, many of the same people are in power and same, same feelings still exist. And it is the kind of con continued reference to what had happened in the 1990s that hopefully will teach the next generation not to go down the same path that their parents did. And the photographs are one of the best, best ways to, to remind people about how bad it I was one of the first photographers in the prison camps. And when we arrived there, we thought we were in a scene from World War II. Skeletal figures behind barbed wire, people telling stories of summarily executions and starving to death and so on. And while they weren't Nazi concentration camps, they were very brutal prison camps. And it was important for the world to know what was going on. It is amazing how we sort of ignore some of the conflicts that go on in the world whether it's a U.S. policy or people don't want to get involved for whatever reason. But like Darfur, like the Serbo-Croatia, that whole entire conflict, we just sometimes don't want to get involved because it's not a big deal. Even though it's genocidal or it's, uh, you know, uh, human rights are just being ignored. But I think photographs, like the ones that you were able to share and capture, show a whole different approach than, hey, so-and-so killed 100 people uh, by executing them. When you see this happening in a photograph, it has a lot more power. I hope so. I mean, I think that that's the goal of the photography is to create an emotional connection 
between the viewer and the image so that you can react and become invested in it. And then when you understand what the photograph is about, the content, the caption, the information, it sticks with you. If the photograph is some sort of picture of brutality that you can barely look at, you know, you're probably not going to remember it 20 minutes later, especially in today's age where it's, you know, swipe, swipe, swipe. Mm -hmm. So our goal is really, um, you know, I want there to be a reaction. I want there to be some, at the very least, some sort of understanding. And if not, uh, preferably something more, uh, conversation with your local politician, a donation to Doctors Without Borders or UNICEF or some, some sort of active kind of uh, reaction or maybe going out onto the streets and protesting if it really means something to you even more. But I think also one of the things, especially for us as Americans, um, often we're like, oh, well, that has nothing to do with us. But in actuality, in a lot of these places, certainly not all, but in a lot of them, uh, we are connected through our foreign policy, through maybe not something that's happening in the last four years. But if you go back 10 years, you realize what that administration did in that country and how that has led to what's going on today. So, you know, we, we are mixed up or maybe we're mixed up is something as simple as, um, you know, our phones, you know, people like in the Congo, you know, okay, there's no American desire or anything to do with the war in the Congo, which has been going on since 1998, where more people have died than any other war since World War II. But what are they fighting for? They're fighting over minerals that we're using in our laptops and our phones. So we are connected, whereas we are definitively uh, connected. It is always amazing the disconnect between fighting in places that we don't care about and fighting in places that we do. Uh, but there's an old joke about the United States Army. We always fight for the people that we'll never uh, actually fight. And then we'll the next conflict will be with a country that we have no paid no attention to. Like prior to September 11th, no one would have ever won the bet that we are going to invade Iraq and Yugoslavia, or, I mean, Afghanistan. Nobody would have bet that won that bet. Sure. Especially Afghanistan. But then 9-11 happened and then everything followed that. Where else have you been capturing conflict? Because we've talked about the Congo. We've talked about Darfur. We've talked about a number of things. But you've been to like 25 different conflicts documenting these, these atrocities and this violence. Well, I think one of the things is, given how many, the, the number that is, of course, it's a number over a, a large number of years. But um, it's basically, you know, we're all somewhat similar. You know, I was covering... Um, civil conflict in Russia, covering conflict in, in, in Haiti, in Latin America, um, in Asia. There's, there's, you know, human beings, no matter what we look like and what God we pray to, there are unfortunately some base instincts that uh, we are all the same. And I'm sure you as a soldier, you've seen that. And it's um, it can be both for the positive, but often, and unfortunately, more often than not, it, it's for the negative. And I think that it is, again, now, I don't think photography can save the world on its own, but I do think that photographs combined with conversation and communication and education and, and people, you know, sort of taking a deep breath can work together to avoid some of these issues. But we look at, you know, we look at our country today, um, the United States, and we see how divided we are. And we look at what happened in the capital. And while that was certainly not like a, I wouldn't say it was a coup attempt or a civil uprising, but it was a pretty violent uh, attack 
And um, that was something that the week before, nobody would have ever thought would have happened. And it's the first time since um, you know, Abraham Lincoln that things like that were happening. So it's pretty- Now, dramatic. Ron, you were in the Capitol documenting this. I was, yeah. I went in, I was one of the first, uh, I went in with the first guys that went through the window, uh, one of the windows that they broke. And they were, you know, they were pretty definitive and they were, in their mind, patriots. And they completely believed what they were doing, um, but thought what they were doing was right. And it's shows where we are in this country, where you have a lot of people that are completely in the belief that they believe one way. And on the other side, you have people that believe the other way. And that's not the way this country can move forward. You have to find some common ground. So as you were documenting, I was, I was seeing some of the other photographers works. It looked like there was almost like a, a display, like they wanted to be captured in the moment. The people that had broken in the Capitol, they weren't hiding their faces. They weren't wearing masks. Why do you think that might be? Well, first of all, every third person, whether they were a journalist or a participant, was was taking photographs with their phone, with, with something. So everybody was documenting everything. So one more person with the camera, um, you know, unless you had media all over your face, there you know, you know, nobody knows who anybody is. It's a very, it was a very eclectic group of people. They're not all wearing the same uniform. And so on. So there's that. There's also just the the energy of the mob, the energy of the moment, people flying in there and, and again, believing what they were doing. Later in the day, um, well, actually not even later in the day, depending, also depending on what groups you encounter. Uh, I had no issues, but a number of my colleagues were beaten and cameras smashed and so on. Um, because there's also a group that had just left a speech by the president who told uh, everybody that the biggest problem that they had was the media. And so, therefore, the media is the enemy of the people. And here they are with the media um, in these situations. So it kind of just depended. But, of course, there, there are so many people and so many cameras that, of course, we have this amazing uh, compilation of, of all these different different situations, which are happening over the Capitol is quite big. And so it was all, all around the Capitol, uh, all these different things were going on. When you are encountering these mobs, whether it's in Panama or the Capitol, there has to be an element of danger uh, to it. And, and you're not a soldier. You're, you're not a person in uniform. You're not a police officer. You're, you've got your camera and you're documenting. What is going through your mind uh, regarding your personal safety? How do you sort of uh, manage all this for the last 30 years? Uh, first of all, I think it's pretty important for everybody to understand that like, we don't carry weapons. Because if we carry a weapon, that means we're a combatant on one side or the other. So we are left up to our wits, some good luck and so on. Uh, and it is difficult. Uh, mobs are are very dangerous because mobs have an in- energy of their own. And if one person says, hey, let's go get them, usually the crowd goes. And then if there's not another person that says stop, things, things can get uh, quite rough. In fact, um, some colleagues of mine after the uh, Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, um, came into a mob of, of Somalis and they were, they were, the Somalis were so angry about how many uh, people had been killed. They just, they just killed them all um, by a mob. So it's a very scary, I'd much rather be on a front line um, photographing in a bunker or something like that than been dealing with a mob. But the overall idea about safety is something quite serious because it is becoming more and more dangerous uh, for journalists to work where targets more and more, not only, with pro-Trump people, but across the world, uh, people want to control the message. And so you have to learn how to operate in these situations. And the fact actually 
so many journalists were dying during the war in Yugoslavia, a group of uh, former British Special Forces soldiers saw a business of how to train journalists how to survive in a war zone. And it's known as a hostile environment course. And they're now very popular and, and basically essential training that before you go to a conflict area, you take one of these courses, you learn how to operate, you learn how to deal with people with guns, you learn what to do if you get kidnapped, and you learn what to do um, if you get wounded. You take uh, trauma first aid classes and so on. So the people, the, the photographers, journalists that are continuously kind of doing this work are very well trained uh, in first aid and how to deal with a drunken kid with an AK-47 and so on. Of course, you know, luck is always going to be part of it, but the more you understand how to work in these situations, the better off you're going to be in terms of survival and, of course, being able to work. So it's as much a preparation as it is anything else. Obviously, a lot of luck involved, especially with mobs. I did find it really interesting that you'd rather be on the front lines of a uniformed conflict in a bunker or what have you than in a mob. Mobs are terrifying. You just don't know which way they're going to go. And it's like one one person often it's usually some usually it's like a very old woman who gets angry at you starts screaming and then everybody else follows her lead and that's happened to me uh, a number of times and so i'm always very very frightful whenever an old woman walks by in, in one of these situations it's time to leave so it's the old ladies that that sort of are the catalyst towards violence that you've experienced that you've seen. Yeah, at times. I mean, not overall violence, but in these in these mob sure. situations, yeah. It is uh everybody respects the old woman and she says, Go get that guy, then they're gonna go get that guy. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. I could definitely no. uh, see that. I remember a time in Bosnia there was a quite a mob had built up and there was lots of conflict, and eventually we just had to calm the situation down by backtracking some. And, and of talking with some of the local leaders, but it was getting ready to the point where it was about to start shooting off again. It is amazing how quickly those situations can evolve and the wrong thing said at the wrong time could spark gunfire and death and violence. Absolutely. So you are photographing all these things and you were in Georgia, I understand as well, during the conflict there. Yes, yes, I was. So that must be terrifying because they are really good at controlling the media. Um, long history of suppression of, of of the message, whatever the message is that they don't like. You're talking about Georgia, the country with the Russians. Yeah. You're talking about yes, okay. yeah, right, yeah, not not down south, uh, not the Senate <laughs> yeah, race. That was violent yeah. too. No, that was <laughs> yeah. a conflict, but not nearly as violent. Right, yeah. and the little green men and all the rest of it. How do you decide where you're going to go and in? photograph while you're in a country like Georgia with that, that conflict that was happening? Yeah, Georgia is a really very interesting because, um, I mean, I arrived, it was a very short war and I arrived a little bit late, but there was still a lot going on on the ground and you can get, you can interact with both the Russian side and the Georgian side. Um, there was sort of little opportunities to kind of cross back and forth. Uh, and then there was no man's land and it was, um, the Russians were starting to creep closer to Tbilisi and, and the Georgians were, very ill-prepared and very scared. Um, the Russians could have walked in at that particular moment. Um, and it was just being really careful. Um, and it, in fact, actually also was a good lesson of being careful about the people that you're with. Uh, because we were working, myself and some colleagues were working on the Georgian side and we had a Georgian translator. And all of a sudden, things had, cha things had changed 
and things had changed. And all of a sudden we were in Russian or Georgian occupied territory, Russian occupied, Georgian occupied Russian territory or no, wherever the Russians had occupied parts of a part of Georgia all of a sudden. Right. Um, and we, and then all of a sudden we were uh, with a Georgian and, on the wrong uh, side of the line, on the wrong side. And uh, we were, and there was a, I guess an FSB officer there and some other people. And um, they started shouting at her and she was very calm. And then one of the journalists started shouting back. And, and then all of a sudden it, the guy was like, and he's flat out said like, you need to leave. And if you don't leave, you're, you're going to find yourself on a plane to Moscow momentarily. Like, I'm just going to take, I'm just going to take her away as a prisoner. Um, so sometimes these things are, are incredibly fluid and we, uh, we just didn't act um, smartly. And it was luckily it was, we didn't, she didn't have to pay the price for our, our mistake with her. How do you decide to go up to an armed conflict like the, uh, the Georgians and the Russians and say, Hey, I want to take photographs. Uh, mind if I take some photographs of uh, your military operations here? Well, you know, it's, it depends um, where you are. I mean, some places uh, people are very open. They want their story told and they're like, sure, come with me and I'll let you see whatever you photograph, whatever you see. And other places are like, you can't be here or you need permission from this person or that person stack the paper and so on. Um, they're all kind of unique onto themselves, but I will say that it's been definitely becoming harder and harder as people become more and more aware of the power of the image, right? Because everybody's now a photographer. Everybody has a camera in their pocket and they understand what happens when you post something on social media and so on. So it's, it is in some places very difficult. So, for instance, uh, I was one of the last photographers uh, working on the Tamil Tiger side in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and then I left, and then the government went on a big offensive, and they didn't allow any media at all. And nobody still to this day knows exactly what happened, but they massacred thousands of people, and there's no visual evidence. They were very deliberate. There were no journalists. Nobody was there. And that's pretty hard to do. Um, in recent times, because people are becoming very, very aware of what's going on. ISIS is another great example. Normally, had ISIS been a, a faction 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or maybe let's say 20 years ago, they would have wanted to get their message out, and then you would have needed the messengers of journalism. But ISIS said, no, we're going to create our own media group. They had their own photographers, their own filmmakers, their own channels, and they didn't really care. All they were their visual imagery was to get more, uh, more, more supporters. And so I think you had maybe in certainly with Iraq and Syria, maybe one journalist maybe had a little bit of influence or ability to see what they were doing, but most people only encountered ISIS in, in defeat. It's pretty pretty remarkable. So the job that we have to kind of go out and tell these stories um, is becoming harder and harder to do. So it's sort of trying to be the neutral, hey, I'm just here to document what's happening. But as people realize that those images could either be incriminating or problematic, you get more and more pushback, as opposed to the embedded uh, photographers and journalists that the U.S. military does, which thousands have participated in that. But on like groups like ISIS. Even, so, even, and, even to that extent, I think that, you know, I think, first of all, I thought the embedding idea was was really great and allowed us. Um, I was embedded with, uh, with the last Gulf War. I was embedded with uh, Marines from Twenty Nine Palms, and it was an incredible experience to be able to work with them. 
Um, but there, as that war moved on, and as sort of, as especially as casualties started to increase, um, the the DoD was starting to censor uh, photography, and it made sense to be able to censor, saying like, "Oh, please don't post that picture of this wounded soldier until his family is notified." That's perfectly understandable, but they were just saying like, "No, you're not even allowed to photograph uh, this wounded soldier." And that's that's a mistake because uh, the American people need to know uh, the sacrifice uh, of what was happening. And if the soldier was giving you permission to do so, why why wouldn't you be allowed to do that? But the DOD at times, not all the time, but at times felt like they needed to control the message. And so it's it's not just uh, the other people. Really, it's us. It's everybody trying to control uh, to control the story. Um, and, and often it's, it's, it's the wrong choice. It's better to capture the image that moment in time will never be here again, as opposed to, no, you can't photograph, take any photographs at all. So sort of balancing those two, that must be a really difficult thing for someone to make a decision. But of course, governments are always going to lead towards privacy and, and, uh, controlling the message more than anything else I would imagine. They do, but then, then often there are times when let's say you're you're in a firefight with Marines or whoever, and they say like, oh, don't take any pictures. And then you took pictures anyway. And then they look at the pictures and they're like, oh, these are great. Can we have these? <laughs> because it shows it shows their men and women doing, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and here's the perfect documentation of that. So it's this kind of before and after mentality also, which is a little bit um, a little bit strange. It must be hard to control that. I mean, because your entire instinct is to capture everything and being told no must uh, leave a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something, you know, something very difficult. So like I referenced earlier, earlier the story of the Serbian paramilitaries executing uh, the civilians. And the whole time while they were doing that, they were yelling at me, uh, no photographs. Don't take any photographs. And I was witnessing what was obviously a war crime, unarmed middle-aged people being shot down by well-armed paramilitaries and there was no way that I was going to leave there without photographic evidence because I needed to hold them responsible for what they were doing. And so sometimes we have to kind of, you know, you take that line, you cross that line um, because you think it's for the, for the greater good. And with those photographs, a number of people were indicted and convicted uh, of war crimes and the photographs continued to represent uh, war crimes. And it was important that the picture was taken. How in the world did you get away from the paramilitary mowing down innocent civilians after they're telling you not to photograph, but you're doing it anyway? They uh, they didn't see me take the actual photograph for some strange reason because I was standing in the middle of the street and I was able to. Now this is this is this particular picture is quite a while ago, so they, it wasn't digital. They can say, "Hey, let me see the back of your camera," and I basically left the city, went straight to the airport. And sent the photographs off, and where they were published by Time and a bunch of other places later later that week. Um, the price for me was that when the photographs finally came out, the the leader, that was a very famous uh, warlord, uh, put me on a death list, and then tried to to capture me for the next um, seven or eight years. So I kept managing to to avoid that. Well, I'm glad they uh, they were not successful. I'm sure they were very annoyed. They were not happy. Uh, that is true. Yeah, especially you know the whole war crimes uh, tribunal that that tends to put a damper on things. Indeed. So, Ron, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, coming to coming home well and sharing your your expertise on sort of capturing the essence of conflict. Uh, 
you are a braver man than most uh, people that I know. I don't know that anybody would have gone to over 25 different conflicts intentionally on purpose, unarmed, and getting in the mix of where everything is happening to capture those images. Uh, folks, Ron Haviv has a couple of books. You can go look him up. He's got a great website that sort of goes over all the different conflicts. It's ronhaviv.com, and we'll put it up on the Coming Home Well Facebook page and the uh, website as well. Ron, thank you so much for joining us at Coming Home Well. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Coming Home Well, helping civilians better help veterans. Watch your